You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. I don't have to do your problems for you. You do your problems for you. That's why I graduated, so I don't have to do problems. I don't understand these fractions. All right. What's one-third of 60? That's a fraction. I don't understand it. All right. Look. Let's say that this boxcar is 60 feet long, okay? And one-third of it is across this switch here, all right? Okay? And now another train is coming. Now, how far do you have to move this boxcar off the track so that the other train doesn't smash it? Quickly, Brad, there are thousands of lives at stake. Brad, any answer? Hello and welcome to the 602 Club. I am your host here, Matthew Rushing. I'm so excited to be here on this, uh, well, it's actually 4th of July Eve, uh, so that doesn't mean anything to anyone in in perpetuity, so I uh, just forget I said that. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited because we're going to go back in time and look at a movie that kind of changed the landscape of film in 1977. And no, I'm not talking about that movie. I'm talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I have some amazing guests here with me to talk about this. One, somebody I've known since he was in junior high and I was a lot older. The one and only filmmaker in his own right, Ben Davis. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. I uh, love this movie. And uh, Oh, well, I and guess we're done. I mean... Very excited. Yeah, let's let's go. <laughs> uh, it's Thanks, great Matt. to have you, Thanks. man. Uh, no, I'm so excited. We've uh, we've tried to get you on before, and um, you know you're always pretty busy with uh, directing things, commercials, and otherwise. So uh, it is great to actually have you on. It's great to be here. Very excited. I mean, everybody knows who this guy is. Uh, Literatrex host, Star Wars Report host. I mean, he is internet famous. The one and only Bruce Gibson. You know, you never knew me in uh, middle school or junior high, so I, I knew that introduction was not leading towards me earlier. No, it's true. I did not know you then, but I kind of wish I did because I feel like we still would have been friends. Yeah, probably. Mm. <laughs> well, I don't mm. know. I don't know what that says about us in general, but I've always been that geeky. So I'm just trying to think yeah. when I was in middle school, if you were even alive. <laughs> you're not that much older you're not that much older uh legitimately yeah wow uh i just uh, just for everyone's knowledge uh, at this moment i'm i'm in my last year of the 40s or 
I'm in my last year of the 30s. So, uh, yeah, next year uh, I, gonna, I, I will be at what I like to call it the top of the hill. Not over the hill, just at the top of the hill. Well, I, I am in my last year of the 20s, so uh, I will be needing all of that 30s experience that you've gained over the last nine years. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much experience I, I, I This is not that podcast, but uh, make sure you follow us everywhere. <laughs> uh, go over to iTunes, iTunes.com uh, slash TrekFM. You can find all the shows we're doing. Uh, we uh, have so much going on there, but I really want to say um, more than anything, Hit us up with a star rating review for the 602 Club. Help us grow. Help other people find the show. Uh, you know, if you like the show, let people know what you think of it in, in that way. Really appreciate everybody who's gone over there and been listening to the show. I want to say we've got a great new review from Tigers JC. 86. They said it's been great being a nerd and listening to fellow nerds gush. Uh, well over nerd stuff. Listen and enjoy. They say five stars. So thank you so much for that. Uh, go over there and do what they did. Give us that star rating review and we'll make you internet famous by calling you out in the show. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Trek FM. Make sure you're following us there. Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. Uh, it's a great place to like us and see everything that's going on on the network. Uh, if you would like to have more discussions, you can go over to the Babel Conference, which is our listeners only discussion group on Facebook. Uh, if you were to type Babel into the search field on Facebook, it would pull up. Or if you're on the website at trek.fm, you can hit discussion on any of the menu bars, and that would bring you over there as well. And then last but not least, if uh, you would like to send us an email, go to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and then I and any of the hosts that week get that email, and uh, we'd be able to converse with you that way. So uh, I'm really interested to find this out because uh, confession time here. I had never seen this movie. And so this was my first encounter with Close Encounters. And so I'm wondering for both of you when your first encounter was. And did this movie have any impact on you when you first saw it? Well, I uh, I think the first time I saw the movie was in college. Uh, it was, um, I was probably 19 I grew up watching pretty much nothing but Back to the Future and Star Wars on repeat. Um, and so there was this long list of movies that uh, my friends had made me. And I had always said that I was a huge Spielberg fan when they found out I hadn't watched Close Encounters. Then I was called on it very harshly and uh, went to correct that mistake. So I watched it. Um, and at the time, I was at community college. I was living with my parents. So this uh, idea of going, being anywhere else and chasing a wild dream that the movie is so much about really appealed to me. And after the first time I watched it, I just rewatched it and rewatched it and rewatched it over and over and over again for the next year. And since then I've probably seen it about 30 times. It's, it's one of my favorites for sure. So basically what you're saying is you're the ready player one kid. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. As I wear my NASA hat, which you guys can't see. Um, <laughs> uh, what about you, Bruce? Is this is this a movie that that um, you know you have watched over and over five hundred times, like Star Wars, or uh, when did you first encounter it? I haven't seen it nearly as much as I seen ha have seen Star Wars, so I have not seen it five hundred times. I will tell you when Ben was just saying about when he saw it, he saw a bunch of Spielberg movies, and then he eventually got to Close Encounters. It made me realize that Close Encounters of the Third Kind was the 
first Spielberg movie I'd ever seen. And uh, I saw it in the theaters when it came out in 77. Uh, So that was an interesting year for me. I did not see Jaws prior to that. Um, So I was nine years old uh, when I saw Star Wars in 77. And then in October, that's when I turned 10 and then uh, saw Close Encounters uh, that December. And it was at that moment that I realized I had graduated to a different type of movie genre for myself because prior to star Wars, everything was like Disney and little kid type movies is typically what I watched in the movie theater. And then when I saw star Wars, I was like, Oh wow, this is like a whole nother level. Then I saw close encounters. I was like, Oh my gosh, I love this too. I mean, I didn't love it as much as star Wars, but the special effects and it was involving aliens and spaceships and all that. I I knew I was home. That, at that point, I knew I was home, that these were the type of movies that I'd love to watch. It's so interesting to me because uh, this is just one that kind of like slipped through the cracks. I know it'll shock a lot of people too, but like I only saw Jaws like a year and a half ago. You know, so there were just some of these early Spielberg films that kind of hadn't made the, the watch list before. And part of that was, um, you know, as I've mentioned before, I kind of grew up uh, in, in a much more conservative home. And so there are a lot of those types of films that I just didn't see. Uh, and then, you know, as I grew up too, I like with Jaws, I wasn't a horror fan, uh, you know, and so uh, it just didn't, wasn't something that appealed so, so much later. And, but, you know, coming to this one, I, I feel like it, it is interesting because I think that this movie would have had a fascinating impact if I had watched it earlier in the sense of where it might have taken me, because there is so much of this movie that it just feels, it feels very different from most of the other things that Spielberg has done. Like this feels like the, the most personal thing that he's probably ever been a part of. It seems like, except for maybe Schindler's list where it's just really a part of who he is. Well, and that in yeah. ET, I would think, because that's very personal. Anytime he talks about, anytime he gets the question, "Hey, what what are the movies that mean the most to you?" He always says he can't pick one because they all feel like his children. But then he, you push him a little bit further, and he says three movies, and it's Schindler's List, Close Encounters, and ET, um, and all of those are very, very you know personal to him. So it, I think feeling that uh, comes through those three movies too in very weird ways. Yeah, and I, I mean, there was it was interesting, you know, just getting to watch it for the first time. There's like the Spielbergian dynamic is completely through and through every single part of this movie. Like the, it, it, it just oozes Spielberg, <laughs> um, which it is his movie, and he's he's you know responsible for directing it and the you know writing it, and it is such a, a kind of a personal thing to him, and and. Um, even before we started the show, there's so many things about the movie that are personal to him. So the more you learn about it, you're like, okay, that makes sense there. And that, you know, like you just start to put all of these very um, interesting pieces of who he is and who his life, uh, you know, what his life has entailed and everything. It's crazy to me um, just how much this this movie kind of encapsulates everything that Steven Spielberg is as kind of like a person and just even like his 
his outlook on life um, is 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 there. And one of the things that really caught me was in the movie was this whole idea of the family dynamics that we get. And uh, I was fascinated with this because a lot of Spielberg's early movies are about families. But in many ways, through the lens of like divorce or possible divorce, and um, Deneuve said that in the interview uh, for the extras, the director of Arrival and and Blade Runner 2049, he was talking about how that really struck a chord with him because one of the biggest fears for kids' life in the 70s was, you know, parents uh, splitting up and divorce was on the rise. And so one of the scariest things that could happen to you would be to have your parents split up. And I thought that was fascinating because this and E.T., very much play with those kind of family dynamics. I never thought about that before, but, you know, being a kid of divorce too, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And another thing that's really interesting, kind of piggybacking off of all of that, um, Spielberg first kind of came up with the idea for the movie when he was about 15 years old. Um, and it was a movie that he kept rewriting and rewriting and rewriting over the years. And right at that time, he was really in the throes of dealing with his parents' divorce. I believe he was 12 when uh, they moved from Arizona to California and he moved with his dad. Um, And then he went to high school in California um, and started to was making movies around that time. And it really kind of shows that you can you can see what was happening in his life, even in the script that he wrote 20 years later, because, you know, Close Encounters came out. I think he was 29 in 1977. and it's really crazy to see that that is something that he held on to for so long and still is very much present in that film that he had reworked and reworked and reworked. He had drafts of Close Encounters ready before Jaws, but no one was willing to let the guy who made Sugarland Express and went over budget on that movie make Close Encounters. So Yeah, didn't he, um, went as a kid with his Super 8 camera, make a little film that was very similar to Close Encounters or about aliens invading and UFOs. I think I remember seeing something like that. Yeah, he made this movie called Firelight, which is um, basically the the student film version, if you will, of uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In fact, he screened that movie for uh, Douglas Zilmond and some of the other DPs before they started Close Encounters, just so that they could all be on a, a very similar spiritual page before they go and make this movie that he had been remaking and thinking about for 20 years. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And in, in, in a lot of ways, this just kind of reminded me of Lucas's THX 1138, where it's like the movie that he had been kind of like making and then he remakes, you know, like the, it's just something that he was so invested in. Um, and really, you know, in, in, in many ways, the, the experiences that Lucas has is on THX 1138 puts him on a trajectory of where he's going to go next and what he's going to do next, you know? And, and for many ways, I feel like Spielberg, he has that same experience kind of with this movie. Like it almost, it, it feels like once he's finally done with this, it unlocks him to be able to do a lot of other things. Um, like we talked about, you know, E.T. and, uh, you know, of course he'll do Indiana Jones and um, all of this stuff. It, it just feels like, it's almost like he needed to get this out of his system. And part of that, it seems like it, it's kind of like cathartic for him. Um, and I, I just found it very interesting because for me, 
you know, having a, a, a family where divorce happened and a dad left, the family dynamics here were just it were fascinating to me because it's it's very real. Like the 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 movie itself plays um very real with what's happening here and just kind of the ways family kind of interacted. Like if when you watch one of those like 70s TV shows and you see a family interact where they kind of yell at each other and like it's not like happy-go-lucky all the time. This just it, it, he captures that kind of perfectly. I I really enjoyed watching this time uh, more so than some other times recently because this was the first time my kids have seen it and my daughters are both teenagers. And so watching it with them was very interesting. And uh, I'll, I'll probably bring that up quite often through here uh, from their perspective. But when it came to the family dynamics, you know, there were times that I could tell that my daughters were a little on edge prior to family scenes, just like the other scenes that are going on, like what's happening and this is a little bit scary or whatever. But then when it came to the family, there were times that they were just laughing at the way the kids were acting. And then there are other times it was just a, a, a look of shock and, and worry at them. And just seeing the dy- dynamic of ups and downs with watching the family members and how they're relating to each other. But I really did enjoy the fact that they were all the, the family members in this movie really seemed like a family and just the way the kids are acting and like the one kid just taking the doll and just like banging the doll, just trying to break the legs <laughs> off of it. And like just things like that, just going on in the background, just things going on. It's like, this looks like you actually put a camera in somebody's crazy house, mm-hmm. you know? And it was just so great. Cause so many times I see movies with kids and families and it seems more like a movie version where this feel felt like, yeah, this looks like a real family. This is like probably things that actually happened in Spielberg's house. Yeah, yeah, that that's very like he talks about all that too. Like he was the oldest of four kids. He was always pulling pranks. And as uh, as the family kind of broke apart, the Spielberg family, uh, he noticed that the house got louder because the kids didn't know what to do with it. Uh, Joseph McBride, who is kind of the uh, Spielberg guru, if you will, he's written the biography that most people consider to be like the Spielberg Bible. Um, he talks about that throughout how uh, Spielberg's uh, household growing up was always getting zanier and zanier. And his mom was kind of this zany mom, much like Richard Dreyfus in the movie. And her, their dad, who like was a computer engineer, was like very stoic and strong. And like it, it was just this mix match of personalities that... Uh, really kind of created this chaos and we see that in close encounters so well and and I, I agree I think a lot of movies do families really wrong uh, where it's like here's your line here's your line here's your line and in this movie everyone's yelling the train's going off Pinocchio's in the background like it's just it, it feels right and it feels chaotic and that's what families are it's like and, and and the point about divorce it was interesting too that you mentioned because I remember at the time this movie came out this is I think probably the first time I saw a movie that portrayed divorce and now it's not in your face divorce it's not like they talk about divorce and they're being with divorce 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 lawyers and stuff I mean it's just it's portrayed as if you know they're separated and they're going their separate ways and then shortly after this I think or around this time uh, Kramer versus Kramer came out, which was a big movie that really tackled the subject of divorce. And I remember that being a big deal. So at this time in the late 70s, I remember divorce becoming much more of a topic that was showing up in film. 
And this was probably one of the earliest that I had ever seen, if not the only one I had seen at the time that dealt with that topic. You know, it's it's really interesting because, and I loved um, Deneau saying this uh, about the fact that this was a real fear that kids had then because it wasn't something that people had really experienced up until now where this was something where kids might feel that, oh no, mom or dad could leave. And, um, and it, in some ways it kind of hurt my heart that it, it was like, wow, that was, that was a thing that was new. Whereas today it's just like, it's just what happens, you know? And, um, there's just something about that, that this really is a whole different time period. This movie's taking place, but the family dynamics, like I, we just went on family vacation with my whole wife's side of the family and there are, you know, a ton of kids running around. And let me tell you, this is exactly what it's like. The kid in the background, just making a ton of noise while everybody's trying to talk, you know, until somebody finally turns around and is like, Hey, stop that. You know, like, because we're trying to have a conversation over here, you know, like that whole thing is just, it was, it is really what Was he funny. saying, you're within an inch of your life. <laughs> it, it, pretty much. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was great. Um, and, and I, that actually may be my favorite scene in the whole movie where he's like talking about like, uh, I, I finished school so I don't have to do problems anymore. That's your problem now. Like he's trying to teach him about fractions. He's like. Any answer, any answer will do as the train is coming towards the boxcar. <laughs> it's just like, it's such a great scene because like he's, he's, he doesn't want to be the dad at that moment, but he's like, okay, I have to do this. And he's, uh, it's, it really is. It, it's, it's part of like that whole, it, it, again, the family dynamic is really perfect. But I think the thing that struck me the most about the movie is Roy, the main character. And there's this real, there's this very interesting dynamic of this immaturity and this selfishness in the character that I, it was fascinating to me. But part of that came from what we were talking about earlier because I was thinking back, Spielberg saying that if he made the movie now, it would be different. And part of that is the maturity of him. And I could see Spielberg's immaturity coming through with this character and I, to me it was just utterly fascinating because yeah having watched this guy grow as a filmmaker for all these years and and, and the way that he shifted and changed reflects who he is inside you know and how that's gone but Roy here is it seems very much like a piece of Steven Spielberg at this point in his life I think that's kind of neat yeah, that was one of the reasons I think that um, he went to make War of the Worlds. And he talks about that uh, while making War of the Worlds. He said, you know, now uh, I would make this movie where I would do anything to protect my family, which is what Tom Cruise does in that movie um, throughout the whole movie, whereas we know that Richard Dreyfuss leaves his family. Um, it's really interesting talking about that immaturity, though, because I think um, – when I watched the movie for the first time, as I mentioned earlier, I was just so caught up in the romance of it and um, Richard Dreyfuss's like infatuation with these things and this kind of dream that he had. And at the time of my life, that's what I was uh, obsessed with too, as a you know 19-year-old about to leave home. 
going and chasing a dream and I didn't really care about anything else. So I really latched onto that. And then as I've gotten older, Richard Dreyfuss' character, Roy, in that movie is really despicable. From yelling at his kids that they're within an inch of their lives to leaving them at the end, there's not really much to like about him throughout the movie. Um, and it does it comes back to that honesty and vulnerability that Spielberg has with this movie and it being such a personal thing where it, it, you wouldn't ever see that really get through a studio today, that main character. He would be right. much nicer and... Um, so it comes from such a weird place in Hollywood history where they were letting people kind of do these things. Um, and even though Spielberg would change it now, I'm really glad that the movie exists as it is because that character is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, because it's not the type of character we would typically see. And so that what that is what makes it very fascinating. And I can see where he might want to redo that. If he, he were to do the movie today, it'd be a little different because... Roy doesn't really seem to really care that much about how he's affecting the family. And you could say it's because he's so obsessed with, you know, what this gift he's been given by these ETs out there that, you know, he's got to go to Devil's Tower and and he's just obsessed with this whole thing. But it's hard to imagine that even if he's that obsessed with something that he wouldn't be struggling with the conflict of that and also trying to take care of his family and trying not to upset them. And there was never that conflict to the point that when we were watching it as a family, my wife said to me, Oh, well, you know, he did, obviously he didn't have a good marriage. So I don't feel that bad that, you know, he's out of their lives because it doesn't seem like they had a good marriage to begin with. And I thought, well, I never really thought about it that way, but thinking about how he's not really reacting to their reaction to him may give my wife and others the impression that he was not in a happy marriage. There's another interesting theory too about all this, uh, which I don't particularly buy, but it's interesting to talk about. A lot of defenders of Roy have said, oh, this isn't Roy deciding to leave his family. He's controlled by the aliens and the aliens are pulling him toward this thing um, and he has no power over it. I don't really, I have trouble seeing that within the movie, um, especially with how uh, Richard Dreyfuss's performance plays out, but it is something that's, that could be an interesting thing to discuss. Yeah, because um, the, the, my take was this, is that just from watching them, and, and we just talked about the family dynamics, so that scene to me where he's at the table and he's playing with his trains and his kid is bothering the hell out of him, and he doesn't want to be there with his kid it doesn't have anything to do with his marriage or anything like that i i feel like the character is the quintessential man boy who doesn't really want to grow up and he's kind of just stuck in this now that he's got a family and he's got a wife and and all this and this he just doesn't he doesn't want to be there like i think he is a perfect example of that kind of character that we even i mean and, and the type of person we even see today of somebody who just hasn't quite grown up yet. And part of that is allows him to have this kind of like, I mean, and again, you even see this selfishness in him where he's trying to talk everybody into going to do what he wants to do, which is to go see Pinocchio, um, you know? And it's like, he's just kind of a dick. And he doesn't really care about how his actions or being a good person or any of that. He just kind of like, 
I want to do what I want to do, and I'm tired of all these people like getting in the way of me doing what I want to do, even if that means I just want to sit here and play with my train set like a five-year-old. And what's fascinating to me about it, though, is that there was another side that I saw, which was you could read this in a spiritual sense, where he has all the things that are supposed to make a person happy, right? Like family and a good job, and a wife, and a good house, and all of those things that are supposed to quote-unquote make us happy, and yet there's still a longing in him that he can't shut down. And when, you know, the thing from above comes, totally changes his world, and he will give up everything to take that. I mean, you you could, you can see this movie in that light as well, where it's almost as if there's been an awakening. Have you felt it? <laughs> um, and he, and it's it's almost as if there's a spiritual awakening in him in some ways. And you can see that part of it as well. Um, and that's fascinating because in a lot of ways, you know, you know Spielberg being Jewish, um, this movie has implications of of him kind of being like a Moses type character, you know, and, and, you know, the, the, uh, devil's rock being kind of like, uh, uh, Mount Sinai and stuff and God coming down, you know, and his face has the burn on it, you know, just because he's seen God's face, quote unquote, you know, like there are all and the clouds really... obscure these UFOs throughout most of the movie. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, absolutely. Um, so I, I think, what makes Roy a fascinating character to me and where I couldn't, where I normally, if a character is like this, I kind of hate them in a movie. But what makes it fascinating is it, it, it Spielberg couches it in this kind of like almost pseudo spiritual realm where it's like there is another layer to this than just somebody being selfish. And to me, that's what makes this a, a cut above as a film because if it if there hadn't been that dynamic there at all i would just i probably would hate this movie but because it's there it 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 becomes fascinating well there's also and just to kind of add to that another aspect of just the idea of insanity because there's so much going on in his head this is these visions and He's looking at things and he's seeing this vision of something and he can't figure it out. And and it almost drives him to a point of insanity. Like he can't let go. He has to release this. He has to figure out what it is so that he can release himself from it. And so there's a calling to him and a search for something else. And something to fulfill himself, but also something that once he gets there, he can just release it. And so, in a sense, I wonder if there's this goal to get that released out of him so that he can return back to his family one day. And he's trying to correct this wrong so that he can make things right again. That's something I never thought of until now. <laughs> so. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I had not thought about that part before because I I don't know. At the very end, I, I mean, I mean, he just leaves. talking about his character. Do you when he leaves? I, I, I don't know if I get the feeling like he he ever thinks about that. He'll come back. I, but I, I like what you were talking about with the um 
with the idea of him having to get it out because that seems like to me that's the part of Spielberg where he just had to do this movie. It had to be done because he had been trying to do it as you were talking about earlier Ben. He's been rewriting this movie since he's 15. Like he it just he's got to get it out of his system so that he can go do other things. Otherwise, you feel like it might wreck him if he can't. Yeah, yeah well, and it nearly wrecked the studio that made it too. <laughs> yeah, and 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 when I say he has to get it out, I I'm thinking that he's feeling that he needs to get this out so that he can relieve himself and he would go back to his family. But I think once he gets there and that mission is accomplished, he realizes that, you know, he doesn't want to go back, that that's that what he went to get rid of is something that he actually wants. And I'm just, cause I don't think he wants to get rid of his family, but then once he gets to where he is, I think he realizes that he's what he had isn't enough and he's looking for more. Right. And I think, you know, that is kind of a, the way that this kind of wraps all into that whole idea of family and everything and, and immaturity and selfishness and, and the idea of, you know, for Spielberg with this character, this this whole thing was very wrapped up in um, Wish Upon a Star and that idea of a dream out there that you, you, you a dream uh, basically is a wish that your heart makes, you know, like th- it's this very Disney type idea that um, you want to make your wishes come true. But do you do that at the expense of everything else? And I think that's an interesting question, because by doing that at the expense of everything else, where does that end up leaving you? You know, this movie shows Roy kind of getting almost everything he wanted, right? But in reality, that's not how it works. Like, anybody will tell you that's a billionaire that got it by working hard and, and you know, discounting everything else in their life. A lot of those people end up committing suicide because they don't have anything that really truly means anything to them. You know, so it's like I there's a there's a whole double-edged sword to this idea of just letting your wish and and desire completely drive you to the point that you discount everything else. And that's interesting because this this movie doesn't really show any of that other side of that. Well, I, I don't think it does because I think um, going back to this being such a personal thing for him, I don't think he had experienced that yet. Yeah, that's true. Um, but he, but he talks about that, and uh, you know, like like I was saying earlier, he was 29 in 1977 when it came out, and uh, I don't think he had had his first son yet with Amy Irving. Um, but he talks about how he ends up kind of becoming uh, Roy Neary later, um, and he's so obsessed with making movies that he just was kind of a bad father. And those are words that he will he says about about. Raising, I think Max is his name, um, his first son, and that he doesn't really learn how to do that until he matures much later into the 80s. Um, so that's a very, I think the reason that that perspective doesn't exist is because he hadn't had that perspective yet, which is a really, really fascinating thing that this, you know, he had just made the biggest movie of all time, Jaws, you know, two years before that. And so he had done exactly what Richard Dreyfus did. He 
chased his dream. He uh, got a Hollywood contract. He made the biggest movie of all time, and now he was getting to make his movie. And in that world, you could see how he wouldn't see anything. He wouldn't see the repercussions of that yet. Those would come later for him, um, like what you're talking about, Matt, but they just hadn't happened for him yet. Yeah. Well, and I think um, what I love about that, too, is, you know, as we were talking about earlier, um, how this kind of mirrors somewhat what happened with Lucas, but they both do that, you know. Uh, And, you know, Lucas ends up getting divorced from Marsha because he's not a great husband because he's been chasing this dream and it's been taking him away from her and she finally has had enough and leaves, you know? And so, um, and it's at that moment where he has the realization, okay, I gotta, I've got to do this. I gotta be a good father now, you know? And, and like you said, Ben, I think there's that moment that happens to Spielberg too, but if it hasn't happened yet and you haven't learned that lesson and, you haven't been necessarily been somebody who has been willing to kind of learn from those that are older than you. Um, yeah, you don't have that experience or you don't have anybody else's experience either to fall back on. So I, I do think this movie is, is really fascinating because it stands in a place that allows us to see uh, in some ways, I think the folly of, of youth when you think you know it all uh, and you're not willing to listen to anyone else and you become so obsessed with something that you discount everything else. And I think that's a, there's such a benefit to that. Like, and I think to me, that's what makes this um, a movie so worth watching. And it made it uh, a movie to where I, if, if it didn't have that aspect to it, I probably, again, I wouldn't like this movie at all, but I really come away enjoying this film because it has something to say in its um, kind of youthful arrogance. And, and that's, yeah. it's a good lesson to be reminded of, um, even as you get older too, which is awesome. Well, and it's it's so pure in that delivery of that message, too, because of the fact that it was made by someone who hadn't experienced it yet. I mean, as he's getting on the ship and saying bye to everyone, you're hearing John Williams play w- Wish Upon a Star. Like, yep. what? Like, that's crazy. Uh, that's like such a pure, um, honest, like lovely way to wrap up this this arrogance. And it shows that, like, it is that because he wrapped it up that way. He like there is, you don't see the family after she leaves the driveway. Like you don't even, mm-hmm. you're, cause Spielberg's not thinking about them. So why should you, the audience? And it's just, oh, it's such a fascinating movie. This is like, we're getting to the, the very stuff that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah. It's like when he's getting on the ship it, now that I'm watching it. So I guess in similar ways with Spielberg, I mean, when I first saw the movie, I was a kid, I didn't have a family and now I'm watching it and I have a family. And when he's getting on the ship, that was something I always thought, man, I would be there too. I would get on the ship. But now I'm watching it and I'm like, I don't really know if I'd, I mean, I want to get on the ship, but I could not leave my wife and my two daughters behind. That would be very difficult. And I can't even tell them where I'm going. I'm just gone. I don't even know if his family ever finds out what happened to him. But the one thing I also was wondering is we're talking about him as a character and and him going from being like you know like this man boy and he's kind of immature and he's looking for more and he's obsessed and as Ben said earlier, you know, 
is it really the aliens that's really just driving him there? Maybe it's not necessarily him, but he's just been kind of taken over. But I always look at it as kind of like an invitation from the aliens to him and to these other people. But I guess the thing I'm starting to wonder now is why was he chosen? And is it just random that the aliens chose these different people? And if it's random, it could be that he's the only one who made it because he had that quality of immaturing and yearning for more that was able to get him there and in the sense kind of be the chosen one to be the one to board the spaceship. Ooh, he has been chosen. Um, hmm, the claw. <laughs> no, that's a see. That's the thing I couldn't figure out either, because you know when, when the ship lands and the, the the people come out, you know who have been taken uh, from all of the disparate elements that we have been seeing, like the planes randomly showing back up, the boat randomly showing back up, all of these disappearances that have happened that have never been explained. Uh, you know, I was surprised that Amelia Earhart didn't show up as well. Oh, I was that would have been great. <laughs> I thought that would have been interesting because that's another great um, and, and and a person that you feel like would have been somebody who would wanted to you know experience this. But I, th- that is, I I don't know. I have no answer for that, Ben. So I'm wondering if you do, Ben, because you've seen this so many times. I I think um, my answer doesn't come within the reading of the movie. It comes more within a way that I like to see the movie, which goes to that uh, kind of spiritual component that you were talking about earlier, Matt. Um, Spielberg, uh, as he's making this movie, really had to have a lot of faith in himself. And we see that in Roy's character too. He's discarding everything. And I think um, by the sheer token of the fact that he is the last person there that's not supposed to be there, he's fought through everything. And you get the sense that there's this tele- telekinesis thing between him and the aliens that they're able to tell him things and he's able to get pictures of the mountain and we see kind of that throughout the film. Um, whenever they, they meet at the end and they look at him and they choose him, it would make sense to me that they, can, that they were a part of that journey and saw all the faith he put in to get there um, and that he was just a, a genuine childlike, like he had a childlike faith that got him there, right? Um, and that he he wasn't interested in what technology they could teach him. He didn't come with all the instruments. He was just a guy who wanted to see something amazing and experience something and was able to give himself over to that in such a pure way. I think that's my reason for why they chose him. That's kind of a, like, came from nowhere thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I that's what I see in the movie when I when I see that. Yeah, no, I I can see what you're saying. In in some ways, they're like a he's like an old jars of clay song, you know, faith like a child, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. He, he definitely has to. Uh, he has that component, and I I think, I think that's definitely if if you were to sit down and talk to Stephen about the movie, I think that that's probably more that what he would want you to see, other than it being like just obsession, um, which is definitely just super dangerous, you know. Um. And and what I I think makes this such a fascinating movie is that there are components to all of these different reads, and that's what makes it fascinating. And so that each one of these things isn't necessarily bad or wrong in it of them in it of itself, right? And even Stephen, you know, at this point would say, 
I probably would do this differently because I have these experiences like we were talking about earlier. So, but there, it just, it makes it such a nuanced movie to be able to have all of these different reads and, and to kind of see um, the danger of all that's happening played out this way. And it, it's it's really beautiful in some sense. Like, it, it's it's just a... I think I like what you said earlier, Ben. There's there's a beauty to the purity of it that allows us to be able to en- enjoy this film because otherwise I feel like, you know, today there'd just be like this cynical edge to something if somebody make a movie like this, but there isn't that. And and so it, at, at, in the end, it actually makes it better for it kind of having that quintessential Disneyified, like we gotta just chase our dreams and do whatever it takes to get there, you know, and like to kind of see that played out. I, I just I think it's really it does make this a special movie for that and a much better movie than uh it had been made today, which is interesting that it's made in the seventies at a time when, you know, Star Wars comes on the scene, obviously, and it's it's revolutionary because it doesn't have that cynical edge. This doesn't have that necessarily either, um, which is interesting to see Stephen and and George tapping into that childlike nature of storytelling, uh, and I think it's one of the things that keeps people coming back to these movies. You yeah, and you can you can see that impact carry throughout the '80s too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like that really uh, '80s Hollywood cinema really kind of rides on those coattails of yes. we're not going to be cynical, we're going to go chase adventure, we're going to have fun. Um, it's where we get Ghostbusters and Indiana Jones and Back to the Future and all of that stuff, right? Comes kind of mm-hmm. from those those kind of seeds there. But a thing that I think is, uh, and you, this is kind of what you were talking about too, is just the accessibility and the strangeness of the way that this movie is made. Um, Close Encounters is probably the quintessential Spielberg movie, like you said earlier. But what's so strange about it is Spielberg is known as the father of blockbuster cinema. And when you think of that, you think of things that have since led into Marvel movies, right? So, um, or, or like the big Star Wars movies that we're seeing now. Um, like that's kind of what he's known for is creating that sort of storytelling, um, big Hollywood storytelling that is pretty like cut and dry and paint by the numbers. But like this movie, while it has Spielberg's dolly moves, while it has his lens flares, while it has like all these things and motifs that are like quintessential Spielberg, it's very much an art film. (laughs) Like there are cuts in this movie that don't really make sense. And it kind of, you have to place yourself in it for a while. And then, you don't really know what the characters are thinking and not everything is spoken out to you and it doesn't pace itself in a very neat way. It's a very like strange movie that's open to a lot of interpretation. So it's, it's interesting to look at it through that lens from like the father of Hollywood cinema. Um, one of his movies that's most him is a big Hollywood movie that made a lot of money. Um, but it isn't Jurassic Park or Raiders and it's not as clean as those movies. It's much more open to interpretation. Yeah, you're talking about his style and in the camera moves and stuff and such. I've always loved his style and, and even back in the 80s in his movies, but I did feel like this was it did feel like an early Spielberg movie because there's so many camera 
styles and shots and the way things were done that seemed like it was a bit overboard in that style and different ways of like, you know, trying to shoot things and just, just a little overboard where I can tell over time he started to tame that down and not do certain aspects as much throughout a film like he did in this one. There was something, I, so we randomly were talking about Ready Player One before this. Uh, we were started recording, and I was thinking about the differences of the way that, like you were saying, Ben, this is an art house film from a blockbuster maker uh, who had just created the blockbuster with Jaws, and yet this movie has a lot of similarities with Jaws in the sense there's a lot of uh, shot composition that's similar, and there's also, uh, and obviously because it's Spielberg, but there's also this the way that he builds suspense in this movie, where he uses the camera moves and everything to not really show you the aliens, he's just alluding to what's happening, uh, until the moment at the very end when he does kind of like the Jaws thing where he reveals it all to you. Um, and, and part of that's just such smart filmmaking, because at the time it saves them a lot of money. Uh, but two, there's a less is more thing, which when we get to something like, uh, ready player one, where he throws everything in the kitchen sink in, and it's just, it's a mess. This doesn't have any of that because he has to do less is more. And there's such a, um, there's such a nuance to that. And there's such a craft to that. I think it's it's fantastic. Um and I would say when it comes to like CGI spectacle type things, Spielberg's not as good at that as he is with this because even Jurassic Park he's still having to use a lot of these same techniques because he doesn't have everything open to him. So um, I think that's fascinating, and it's one of the things I loved about this movie was the art house nature of it, where it is a weird movie. It's paced so strangely, like starting off in the desert in the middle of nowhere with these planes. You're like, what the heck does this have to do with anything? You know, like, but it's great because he's using it to kind of like draw you in to make you ask those questions. And... um I I really enjoyed it, and I do have to say, watching the documentary, I was very thankful that I watched the director's cut because he talked about how um, he actually went in and he cut some scenes down and stuff and edited some things to make it a little bit tighter, and I'm like, oh, I can see that if he hadn't done that, I would there would be points in the movie where I would have gotten bored uh, because he had maybe lingered too long in certain areas of the film. But I felt like he did a great job of kind of going back in, doing a little bit of nipping and tucking. And he, I, this is, this is, um, this is honestly, I, to me, this is one of the best movies he's, he's made. I just, I, I guess I'm giving away a rating there, but I just, I'm really, I, I'm so impressed with the filmmaking ability of Spielberg in this film. Yeah, he. Uh, so I'm glad you mentioned about the pacing. So when I watched it recently with my family, I'm pretty sure it was not the director's cut. Um, and my oldest daughter, my youngest daughter didn't stay for the whole thing, but my oldest daughter, who's 16, said she liked it. It just, 
seemed to really be slow at the beginning. And there were times where I did feel like some things, scenes were going on too long, especially the one where it was like, I don't know what was like, uh, an air force base or something. The guys are all sitting around the radar or whatever and talking to the, uh, the aircraft, air air traffic controllers. Yeah. 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 I mean that just, I kept sitting there going like, I don't remember this going on forever. Like it just seemed like it went on for like, 10 minutes i mean it probably wasn't that long maybe five minutes but it just was like really not going anywhere for a while like that to me that could have been cut like in half in terms of its timing but like you're saying about the you know when the digital age when we can show so many things now i love the less is more i love the comment you're saying on that because you know i feel like if a movie like this was done today we probably would have seen the aliens earlier or at least glimpses of them. I like the fact that we're not seeing any of them until the very end. That when we see uh, Jillian's house and they come and they take Barry, I mean, everything that's going on in there is just to your imagination of what's behind that door, what's upstairs or what's below or what, you know, and it's just like your, your, your mind is just going. And that goes in the fact of like jaws and not showing the shark all that much. And I just love that style. I hate when too much is shown. Yeah, and it's it's so funny. So much of that is from all the problems they experienced making this movie. <laughs> it was uh, the movie, I think, when he pitched it originally in 1973, was budgeted for $2 million. Uh, they ended up spending $26 million, which Columbia didn't have, and they had to uh, basically bet the house. They went into the red to make the movie, and uh, the movie had the movie not done well, which it it did, then Columbia would have would have folded. Uh, there was a lot riding on twenty nine year old Steven Spielberg when he made this movie, and uh, with especially with the aliens, you guys are right to hone in on the fact that he couldn't um, like he couldn't show you them because uh, they couldn't digitally make them, but also they had a really hard time figuring out what those aliens were going to be and how they were going to move. There's a couple of puppets that they knew, but they tried everything as far as the smaller aliens. They put monkeys on rollerblades and alien suits. Um, like they did everything in the kitchen sink to try to figure out how can we get these aliens to move in a, in a correct way. So they didn't even know what they were going to look like until they got there and shot that scene um, at the end. And uh, it really plays to the movie's benefit. Like if we would have seen aliens running around in that house scene, it would have taken so much air out of it. And that scene is just so brilliant with all the noises and toys and yeah. And also kind of reminds me of poltergeist what he did later with that movie. It's the same type of thing where things in the house are just becoming animated and things are moving and you're just wondering what's on that other side. Yeah. And he does that in the car scene uh, when he's in the truck and the, you've got the mailboxes moving and it, 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 what it does is it takes something from our world and makes it otherworldly because it's doing something it shouldn't be doing. And it kind of starts to freak you out. And yeah, if you show an alien there, you totally ruin that. So uh, what did you guys think about the aliens at the end? Like in the reveal of them, you know, being aliens. Because I, I'll just I'll say up front, I almost feel like it, it would have been better to have the musical montage back and forth uh, and then never have really showed them. Just open the door, have the people come out, and have Roy go in. Because I almost feel like you showing any kind of alien, to me, I, I would have. I think it could have stayed mysterious, and that would have been 
more interesting because once they come out and they look kind of silly, it, I mean, and I get what time period is, okay? So, but it's, but it's still, it's like, I almost feel like the better choice is not to show them and, and let it be a little bit more art house in that sense. That's interesting. I've never, I've honestly never even considered that. I think because I've seen the movie so many times at this point, um, that's, that's a really unique perspective having just seen it. Um, which means I'm wrong because I'm the guy who just saw it. So, (laughs) well, no, I, I, I like the idea. Uh, I think, um, I think Spielberg probably definitely at that time wanted to say, uh, these are aliens and to show Mm -hmm. them standing next to people, um, and to show that uh, despite all the menace that they've caused, because there's an argument that they are, you know, good aliens in quotes, um, but they've, they're also kidnapping kids and, like, causing real problems. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're kidnapping like, pilots in World War II yeah, and a whole ship. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like, but I think, I think that was kind of his way to, to save some of those things at the end was to show... Uh, aliens and people standing next to each other peacefully, um, and civil rights was something that he cared a lot about, uh, and was doing was very much doing a um, metaphor there for that, um, and he talks about that as well in, in many different places. But um, that is a really I, that's really fascinating. I really do like that idea, though. I'm I'm interested in what that would have been like. I think it would have worked. Uh, I I think he probably felt. And maybe even the studio felt that if they didn't show the aliens, the audience probably would have left and felt they were shortchanged. I also feel that he probably looked at as wanting to show, as you were saying, Ben, that they're peaceful and they're not monsters. I mean, who knows what these aliens look like? And I mean, they could look like monsters or or some Ferengi or something coming off of the ship and, you know, that. They're small, and they seem peaceful. I always thought they looked like Barry, the little boy. Yeah. (laughs) I used to always think that. But it's interesting, too, because, first of all, I find it more interesting. Well, just really quickly, it is really funny that you say that, because they were actually uh, little girl ballerinas that were put in alien suits that were filmed at a a higher frame rate and then sped up to make them look fluid. Yeah, that's so So, cool. So there you go. (laughs) I actually found the humans coming off the ship more interesting and the fact that they hadn't aged and they had been on this ship for such a long period of time that to me when i first saw it and even to that today was a little more interesting to me than the aliens but i remember at some point and i don't know if it was a tv version or a different video release and i'm sure ben you probably know uh there was another cut where he actually, after he got on the ship, they showed the interior of the ship. And I remember Spielberg saying he wished he didn't release that version because he felt like it was revealing too much. And I think with the aliens, it was probably that that line, that fine line, do you show the aliens or not? And how much of the aliens do you show? And like showing Roy get on the ship, now that crossed the line. That probably went too far, and he's he pulled that back in later versions. Yeah, he actually uh, he never ever wanted to do that. So there's three versions of the movie. There's the original theatrical one. There's the special edition, which is the one where you see him go into the UFO, and then there's the director's cut, 
um, which has that removed. And the reason that he had to show them going up into the UFO was because there were scenes that he wanted to shoot and he wanted more money from Columbia to shoot these scenes for a re-release. Um, and Columbia said, okay, well, if you want to shoot these scenes for a re-release, then we need something to market the movie on. So you're going to give us the inside of the UFO. And we're going to market it as, come see the re-release of Close Encounters. You can see the inside of the UFO. Spielberg said, I hate that, but if you let me shoot my scenes, I'll go do it happily. And so that's what happened. And then uh, when he got to do his director's cut years later, he uh, nixed that stuff from it. So that's where George was like, well, well, Steven got a special edition, so I should get a special edition. So I'm going to add scenes and we're going to do as Steven did. So, yeah. You should the you can't inside the ship. Like that. I'm showing Jabba. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Han doesn't shoot first. Uh, so yeah. Uh, no. That I. That, to me, again, that's like I'm with you, Bruce. That the people coming out was fascinating, and then when the guys like so Einstein was right, and the other dudes like, yeah, Einstein was probably one of them. And it, like it gets your mind thinking about all of these type of things. And uh, to me. It just it made for a really interesting ending. But not only that, but I really liked the whole idea of music as a language because one of my favorite books is called The Sparrow, and it has a sequel called The Children of God, both fantastic books by Mary Dory Russell. And it's uh, the, the premise is, is that music is heard by Seti coming from uh, a distance that's not too far away, uh, and the books are set in the near future so that we're able to travel, you know, um, that distance to find that music, but the link is music. Uh, and I thought that that was fascinating for this, that music then is the link and that that's how they communicate is through music. And I thought, to me, it just it made for a very unique take on the you know the human alien relationship and how they connect and and speak and all of that kind of stuff and it's the one thing in the movie where like oh man that's kind of where i would love to have a little bit more explanation um to to know exactly how that works but again the imagination that comes from that was just to me kind of fascinating so i really enjoyed that aspect of the film that you know, and it makes what John Williams does so integral to the movie. Uh, and so, yeah, I just really like that. Well, and the music's by John Williams, and it's just, I mean, I love John Williams' music. So this is just another great, I mean, I remember at the time, it's like, oh, wow, the guy who wrote the music to Star Wars did Close Encounters. But, you know, music is a universal language, and that's what I loved about this. And And for me personally... At this time, I really was starting to get into music in, within school, and I was teaching myself piano, and I taught myself, well, I figured out those five notes. And I mean, everywhere I went, if there was a piano, whether at school or somewhere else, at the church or whatever, I'd, you know, play on the piano, boom, 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 to the point that when I started to take piano lessons, that was one of the first pieces of sheet music once I got familiar with playing the piano i asked for close encounters of the third kind and performed that at a recital i still have the sheet music to it from back then i mean that's how much the music of this movie meant to me and those five notes and how you communicate with the aliens is through uh musical communication it is the universal language is music and i i just and, and i mean every time i see this movie into this 
to this day. I think of myself playing it on the piano and just, it, it means a whole lot to me. Well, I mean, it, James Bond, it's the universal language there because it's the door chime in uh, the code pad for a view to a kill. So there you go. The worst, one of the worst Bond movies ever. So. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I mean saying that a John Williams uh, piece of music or piece of work is great is no uh, groundbreaking thing, but how integral it is to this plot is really like what's fascinating and what you were talking about, Matt. And like Spielberg and John Williams, um, John Williams hates to write anything before he sees picture because he feels like there's such a rhythm to the cuts and that kind of drives what he's doing. Um, so when, so they had to come up with this beforehand, obviously, and there was like a hundred things that they looked at. And when he played it, they both just kind of knew that that was what it was going to be. And it's even more interesting than that is the fact that, um, you know, Spielberg's mom was a music teacher and his dad was a computer engineer. So you put those two together and scientists can talk to aliens through music. Um, and that's uh, another, just another layer of how personal this movie is to Spielberg. He like can't help himself uh, as he's writing this thing to just let it all ooze out everywhere. Um, and even in that final score, you have uh, when you wish upon a star, you have a couple of uh, lines of music from Jaws that they play back and forth together. Um, it's just, uh, it's all kind of in the family there with the music in this movie. And it's, uh, I think it's one of his best scores. Um, and it, it can it, like especially this movie with as strangely as it's paced, like the John Williams score is the white horse. Like it saves the day completely. Anytime the movie starts to drag, that thing just comes in and brings it along. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, I would say the the genius of it is it is such a different type of score than Star Wars. Like this is not the the score that has those sweeping melodic themes throughout it. And 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 so uh, it's one of those things where John Williams shows how he how versatile he is, uh, because you know he's done Jaws, then he's done uh, Star Wars, and now he's done this, and it's three different types of scores. Um, and I just I, I I completely agree with you. You know, there's something about what he does that does really kind of bring the whole movie through. Um, and it is really special. It, it's kind of neat that he got to be so integral to what the pinnacle of the movie was going to be. You know, that works because John Williams creates something that is fascinating to watch the interplay between the computer and the aliens talking back and forth and having this dialogue. Um, it, it, that doesn't work if the music sucks there <laughs> at all. So, you know, again, John Williams does his 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 genius thing and takes a scene and makes it even better because he creates something that becomes uh, a movie masterpiece that we now can't get out of our heads. Yeah, so. it's so simple. It's five notes like that's yeah. that's another great theme about this movie is like simplicity and the score that they talk to aliens with is so simple as well. So uh, for you guys, um, I am interested to see, you know, with with both of you who have seen this movie before, where you kind of come down with your ratings. That's a very good question, Matt. Um, <laughs> actually, um, you know, this is up there for me. And I think, you know, for the time that I saw it, you know, had I seen it later in my life, I don't know how I'd feel about it. I think I would still really like the movie, but... 
you know, it's, it was at a time that was right for me. And, um, it meant a lot at the time when I saw it and I still love the movie to this day. I love the fact that, you know, even as an adult now seeing it with different eyes, just, you know, I love just seeing that there's, this event is taking place around the world. We're seeing it in different parts of the world. It's not just in the United States. That's drives me crazy about like some movies where it's like, you know, Oh, aliens come to earth and they talk to the president of the United States. Well, that's just one country out of hundreds or whatever. So, but there's just so many aspects of this that I really love. And I'm going to say that I'll give this five notes out of five. Yeah. I, uh, it's, this movie is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, it's uh, it's probably not quite in my top 10 of all time, but it's right there in the kind of 11 through 15 range, probably. Um, I think my favorite Spielberg movies are E.T. and Raiders. Um, and I kind of exclude Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List from that because I think they're so... Uh, they're such masterpieces that it's not fair to include them with the rest of his filmography. Uh, but uh, this movie would be right there outside of it. It's just such a weird, cool movie. It's weird that it's a blockbuster movie. The protagonist is so strange. Um, everything that's happening is is mysterious and spiritual and odd. And I just love it. It, it reminds me of um, so much of what 70s cinema was. And that's my favorite era of uh, cinematic history is the 60s and 70s. Just some really cool things were made that kind of changed the way that movies were looked at at that time in a way that uh, we don't get to see those movies as widely as we got to see them at that point in time. And it's just really cool. It's just, yeah, so I, I mean, I have to give it a five out of five. It was interesting to me watching this now, especially since I can see the places that it has influenced so many things, obviously Stranger Things. Um, and yes, then of my course, kids mentioned that. And yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Totally. And then, uh, you know, uh, for Stephen, he even he even said this as well, that for him, the 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 real true what he thinks of as kind of a, a spiritual successor to this in every way is a rival, um, which is another amazing film on this type of level uh, with, you know, the aliens and everything. And so I, I think I am glad that I didn't see this movie earlier because I feel like I can appreciate it for what it is which is i i would say this is probably one of spielberg's best films it's just it's so well done and it's so bold and interesting and different and it's really i would say in a lot of ways it is different than a lot of the other movies that he has made because as you mentioned earlier ben he does kind of have a Spielbergian, you know, uh, blockbuster mentality in a, as you move forward. But this movie really is not afraid to do what it needs to do to tell its story, which is something you could tell is very important to him because he never deviates from that and tries to make it bigger than it should be or bolder or louder. Or, you know, it, it's just, it is what it needs to be. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that this is a great movie. I, I'd say I probably give this, you know, I don't think it's a, a perfect movie, I think, but I don't know. Um, if I was rating this on the Spielberg scale, it would be five out of five. But I think just in general for me, it's probably four out of five, but that's not 
from me taking anything away from this movie what it is. I think it's a it's just a it's something that I'm going to be interested to con- to watch again um and just see, you know, what I see the next time because I think it's one of those types of movies. So, uh I love getting to go back and do this because there are some movies like this that I haven't seen. In fact, uh, actually, confession time. Uh, I was trying to figure out what we're going to do for the hundredth, uh, the two hundredth episode of the Six Hundred Two Club, and uh, we had thought about doing Willow because I've never seen it. Uh, I've never seen I, Willow either. Yeah. So, uh, you're not, and you're not uh, there. and it, you know, Ron Howard just directed Solo. I love Solo. I would love to see you know, uh, but it's not available anywhere. Uh, so I was like. It's, it is a crime. So, um, you know, but there are some movies like that, you know, that from that time period that I'm, you know, I want to like, I try to work in some things like that. Um, and it's fun because I've never seen this. So it, I, I'm so glad that I ended up enjoying it. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, make sure that um, you check us out all over the place. Again, I want to say a huge thank you, though, to our uh, producers, our associate producers here through Patreon, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, and Daniel Noah. Uh, really appreciate all of those gentlemen supporting the network through Patreon, but also choosing the 602 Club as uh, the place they want to put their name on as associate producer. Uh, this is a massive network, and there's absolutely no way that we can finance this all by ourselves. So... Go over to patreon.com slash trek.fm and see how every little bit helps. Um, you can give a little bit a month to make sure that uh, all the shows here on the network keep coming to you each week. Uh, no ads, too. So, I mean, you just get great content ad-free for a little bit a month. We've got some different contribution levels that you can support us at. Uh, you can get some great perks that come with those levels as well. But, again, um, a few bucks a month really makes a huge difference for us. So, again, that's patreon.com slash trek.fm. And I'm really, uh, I, I am Ben. I, I hope you'll, I hope you had a good time, and I hope you want to come back because it's been so much fun having you. Uh, let everybody know where they can find you and um, kind of what you do, because you are, like I said earlier, you're a filmmaker in your own right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I had a blast. I, any chance I get to nerd out about Steven Spielberg, I will take in a second. Um, and I loved talking with you guys. It was great. Um, yeah, I'm a filmmaker. I. Um, I wrote a script actually called Watch the Skies, which uh, has Close Encounters tie-ins as well. Um, Watch the Skies was the working title for Close Encounters for years and years and years. Um, and that was taken from The Thing from Another World, which is the closing line of that movie is Watch the Skies, Watch All the Skies. Um, Spielberg stole that, and then I stole the title he never used from him to write this script. Anyway... Uh, it did well on the blacklist, and I've um, been writing and taking meetings in Hollywood. Um, actually got to meet at Amblin uh, last year and got to see the model of the mothership from Close Encounters in person. And that was a spiritual moment. <laughs> so i uh, very excited to talk about this movie. Um, it's great. And if you're uh, the stuff we're talking about, there's a a book by a professor of mine called Darkness and the Bliss Out, where he talks about the darker side of Spielberg. It's by Jim Kendrick. If you're interested in that kind of conversation, you should check out that book because he talks about a lot of what we're talking about with divorce and how we look at Spielberg in a lighter um, kind of way as a big Hollywood filmmaker, but there's actually a much darker side to much of his work. Um, just wanted to tell people about that book because it's amazing. So 
Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. And, and, uh, yeah, I know you've been more active recently on social media, so definitely give Ben a follow too, cause he's a really cool guy and, uh, he is definitely somebody that, um, if you want information on something like this, he knows a lot, uh, really I, I ask him stuff when I don't know something about like something like Spielberg um, so definitely definitely give him a follow and check out his work so hey Bruce uh, where can everybody find you well you can also find me on Twitter but I can't give you as much background on Spielberg as Ben can but I can talk about some other things but you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex and you can find me here on the network doing literary tracks about the Star Trek books and comics. I do that with Dan Gunther. And then I also do the Star Wars Report podcast where we talk about, of course, Star Wars. And um, I, you know, do have an acting background. So if Ben wants to cast me in any of his films, I'm available. <laughs> I will I will have my people call your people. Uh, and uh, I will get... Uh, I forgot to get my... Tweet name out there, Twitter name. Sorry, I'm Ben Davis eleven thirty eight. Just to keep up with all that Star Wars goodness. Oh yes. Uh, well, um, you can also find me. I'm not an actor, and I've never been in any Ben's films, but I'm cool with it. Um, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I'm an Instagram under the same name. Uh, you can find me here on the network also doing uh, The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I'm over on the Nerd Party Network talking about uh, Harry Potter one chapter at a time with Drea Kaufman over on Outpost. I do aggressive negotiations with John Mills all about Star Wars. It's a great place to check out. It's so much fun. If you love Star Wars, that's really the place for you. Uh, you can also find me on one more show, and that's called Cinema Stories that I do with my friend Courtney, where we talk all about films, but through the lens of faith. So thank you so much for joining us, and y'all come back now here. Yeah.